Coast to coast, nonstop action. This is the premier source for National Hockey League news. Scores, highlights, and the Anaheim Ducks. It's time to light the lamp with Alexis Downing. Welcome to Light the Lamp here on DuckStream. I am your host, Alexis Downey. You are listening to episode 42, and this is the final one for the 2022 year. Now, every time around this time of year, I take some time to reflect. I know it sounds really cliche, but I feel myself doing this a lot this year. A lot of goals for me were achieved personally and professionally a lot of hockey was also covered in this time span, and it makes me very excited for the coming year. We have a lot in store here at the Anaheim Ducks, a bright future ahead, and many opportunities that will also lay ahead. I'm a big believer that everything happens for a reason, and one of those things for me this year was DuckStream and finding myself in the family here at the Anaheim Ducks. So in this episode, I want to take some time to look back and reflect on the first three months of DuckStream. We launched back on September 22nd from training camp at Great Park Ice Arena. We had a Twitter account, we had a plan, and we had a team. And that's all we needed. It has certainly been a ride in this first three months, up and downs with the team, and learning a lot about the stories of all of the people that have been a part of DuckStream so far, too. When we launched DuckStream, it seemed like a very ambitious plan. A 24-7 stream with 10 different rotating shows, including the radio broadcast, which was taken off terrestrial radio and now put on DuckStream completely free to fans. But I am so proud of the team here at the Ducks and everyone behind the scenes, including Joey Libertori and Stefan Bell, who have been a huge part of this project as well. You may not hear their voices necessarily, but you have to know their names because they are a part of making this happen. Also, along with the voices that you hear on DuckStream, Steve Carroll, Dan Wood, and Josh Brewster, a part of the in-game broadcast. And then, of course, my co-host on here, Kent French, who hosts a couple of the other shows. It's been really cool to see how much the stream has grown, considering it's the most comprehensive in the NHL, giving fans the opportunity to hear more about their team here in Anaheim. That has been the goal of the stream, and I hope that we've been able to provide you with that in these first couple months. I think back to opening night when I was live on the orange carpet, truly a dream come true opportunity, getting to see all of the Ducks players arriving to the game and their awesome outfits and cool cars and all of the fans that were there as well, something I will never forget. So with all of that being said, this episode, it's just about reflecting on DuckStream and sharing some of our favorite moments on the stream this year. And to do so, of course, we have to go back to day one of the stream and the very first episode that came out of From Mighty Till Now. Paul Korea and Tamu Solani right here in the Korea studio in the Anaheim Ducks offices. The two of them sat down with Kent French to share stories of their friendship and their time on the ice. That's one of the really cool things about From Mighty Till Now. It's not often fans get to hear from some of the alumni after they stop playing hockey. So being able to still connect them to the organization and to the public is a project that we're really proud of and that we've really enjoyed in this particular show. Korea and Solani's episode was really timeless. There are so many funny moments in it. It was hard for me to pick one in particular to put in here, but we found one and I know you guys will love it. Also, we've had a couple more episodes of From Mighty Till Now 
ones with Corey Perry and Ryan Getzlaff, Scott Niedermeyer, Terry Yake, and of course, Guy Hebert, a guy that you see very often if you tune into the Bally Sports SoCal broadcast. But we can't fit all of them in here, so here are just a couple of the biggest and funniest moments from a couple of these shows. Corey Perry and Ryan Getzlaff when Perry was in town with the Lightning, with Frenchie hosting the show from the hotel that the Lightning were staying in, a beautiful golf course background. You couldn't ask for much more in this one. And then also a clip from Scott Niedermeyer's interview with him and Pronger in the Prius, and then it turned into the hydrogen car. So listen to these three clips that were in from Mighty Till Now next. All right, so, okay, you got late. You got eating off. Eating off people's plates. What is, else is you got? That, that's all I want to start with those two. You all can, right, you can, you can. Tame, what do you got? What do you got for Paul? Me? What, no, Paul, you what? just did perfect. <laughs> that is, you, I'll tell you another. So <laughs> Paul's back again. I'll tell you another story. So we, yeah. when we played together, like we, I, I can count on one hand the times we got angry or mad at each other, especially during a game or, or really? at, any, at any point, really. Really? Yeah. Ne never, never. <laughs> but there was one time <laughs> where I can remember specifically. <laughs> and uh, I, I, it might have been the same year. I went eight games without scoring a goal. And uh, Tamu was, you know, feeding me empty. Like I had so many chances during this time and I just kept missing it. And there, there was one game, I, I think it might've been in Washington. He sent me up for an empty net and I, and I shot and it went post, post and out. And we go back, we go back to the bench <laughs> and there is silence. And then he looks over at me and he's like, Pauli, do you not want to score anymore? <laughs> do you not want to score anymore? And he starts yelling at me and I'm like, <laughs> No, Tamo, I don't want to score anymore. I did that on purpose. And he got, he was heated. Oh. He was heated. Hey, but, but to be do honest, you remember that? Yeah, I remember. But, <laughs> but, hey, seriously, after, hey, almost every game after a certain shift, you know, if he make a bad, bad pass or I made a bad pass, you know, you just wait when we game in the bench and we start giving each other. But that was one thing that how we got better, you know. Like yep. we we didn't accept to have a bad pass or mm -hmm. or or, and we were talking about pretty much after every shift that I was open. You didn't see me. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, but that's why, like, I I really believe that was pushing each other. Same thing in the. Practice. Well, that was pushing, but I'm saying, but this is you yeah, actually yeah. got mad at me. Yeah, that, you were. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You don't want to score anymore. You don't want to score. <laughs> How in the hell? I, I I've always wanted to know. And I don't know if you guys have ever said, but when uh, Tamu first came to the Ducks, what was the first interaction like? I mean, how did you guys start this friendship that you've had for twenty eight years? Let, let me start. Can you start I, I, on this? I, like, know, actually, did... I met Paul in the All Star game in Boston, uh, but the f very first time. This I is met... a lie. <laughs> Very first time this I met is a lie. I don't know what I believe listen, anymore. It's a, it's this a, is a lie. Hey, okay, listen. Can go I, ahead. Can I know I this. Yeah. this you is know the story. I know what you want to talk to, but let me. Okay. This is in Toronto. This is not true. Hey. <laughs> go ahead. Toronto. There's the NHL Awards, and you got uh, there's a, this thing. I think it was a uh, Hockey News Hockey Award. News Awards. Hockey News Award. You were a college player of the year, yeah. Harvey Baker, and I was whatever. Rookie, rookie of, of the, the year. year. Yeah. yeah. And I remember this little Japanese boy that's sitting down, <laughs> very handsome looking guy, hair perfectly, suit on. I said, I, I didn't know that they let the fans here. And, uh, and then, you know, the ceremony started and uh, then they said the best uh, 
goalish player of the year, Paul Curry, and he got up and I said, holy <laughs> you know, this guy play hockey, you know. <laughs> so that, that's actually the first, this is actually the first time I met Paul. I said, wow. Okay, but, but you didn't meet me. You saw me. Yeah. You never said hi to me. And the reason I know this is true is, is Tamu was there with our agent, uh, late Don Baisley. Okay. And Don, if you can verify the story. Oh, at we, the time we, you both had the same? No, no, no. I, oh, oh, I, oh, I, I so I, at the, I, I, this was right after okay. our seasons were finished. Okay. So Tamu's rookie of the year in the NHL and I'm uh, college player of the year for the Hockey News Awards. Okay. And he's sitting with his agent. And I know because we, I hadn't decided on my agent at yeah, that yeah, time. Yeah. Right. So, Don knows for sure that you never came up to me or I came up. I didn't know you. But yeah. he says that's the first time we met, which is a lie. We did not meet. Well, technically not, but. Correct. Yeah. Okay. He thought Thank the you. fans were there. The first time we met was at, at uh, the NHL All-Star Game in 95 before he was traded to, uh, okay. to Anaheim. In Boston. In Boston, yeah. And yeah. what was that like? Where did you, so you met. Yeah, you actually, actually so met. We got introduced. We were in the same locker room, yeah. obviously, but <laughs> Paul is a little shy. You know, so we didn't talk too much. But on the ice, obviously, yeah. inter introduction, I was number eight. He was number nine. So and we were uh, standing in the blue line and, and watching all the players came in and we start conversation. Like, this guy is an unbelievable player. And, yeah. And then, you know, and then, then you know, we played together. And uh, I, I think we were talking about that it would be nice to play together one day. Yeah. And then yeah. two weeks later, I got traded to. Two Ron. weeks? Yeah. That's weird. Uh, it, just, it was so weird. One of my buddy who came to watch the All Star game from uh, Finland, he started socks business. That's normal socks, and yeah. he brought me a couple examples where the NHL teams, and he gave me two Anaheim the Mighty Duck socks. Really? And I didn't realize that until I got traded. That, you know, that was unbelievable. I met Paul there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's a he's a Mighty Duck, and then my buddy <clears throat> brought two pair of socks. Mighty Ducks socks, and two weeks later, I'm I'm gonna go there. Yeah, it yeah. was kind of weird, you know, like how yeah, things that is weird. work yeah. out. But um, yeah, that's uh, I was obviously super excited about you know to go, to go and have a chance to play with Paul and. Uh... What do you guys learn from the Pronger, Niedermeyer, Tamu, that leadership group, playing with those guys and being able to take with you for your career? It's funny. They're all. I mean, the three of them are all such different people that mm -hmm. I think you learn. I know I did. I learned totally different things from every one of them. I mean, Prongs was a guy that, you know, either loved him or hated him, and and he didn't care either way. <laughs> you know, still and that's, doesn't. I know, no, I know. and that's just who he was. And yeah. like, um, you know, but he held you accountable, and he he was there to compete, and you knew he was going to do that every day. Scotty was didn't say a word, but somehow led <laughs> some of the best teams around. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and then Tamo. Tamo, I had I sat beside him in the locker room for many years, and um, you know, and I he taught me how to enjoy the day. I mean, that's how to enjoy this game as opposed to showing up for work every day. What about you? Same. Same. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's uh, Scott, Scotty. I I'll never forget. Like it was, we were, we were playing Calgary in in the playoffs, and Scotty Scotty killed a five on three by himself. <laughs> and he had two breakaways and and I'll never forget that day. It was it was unbelievable. And uh just the way he went about daily business, you know, prongs, I'll never forget practice. He he practiced <laughs> like he played 
he'll cross check you, he'll slash you, he'll he'll do whatever it takes, and then Timo he just laughs. And <laughs> <laughs> those are those are things I'll I'll never forget. And all three of them are in Hall of Fame, and it's you, you can't ask for anything better. Uh, how did the worm come about, Getsy? Where did that come from? <laughs> yeah, please. He's like from Todd Bertuzzi, <laughs> if I'm not mistaken. Really? Yeah. Like, that, uh, that is that is true. Yeah, is it? Yeah, Todd Bertuzzi. I don't know that we can probably tell the full story of how that came about, but give me uh, an abridged give me an abridged version. Todd, you know, an abridged version. Have you met him? That's uh, I think he just <laughs> wiggles like, down the wall all the time. We used to have yeah. to watch him try and wiggle see by. Me on the ice last night. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't. Look up some tape. <laughs> no, he didn't. <laughs> oh, yes. Sorry. Yeah. Look up some tape of Paris trying to wiggle down the wall against Robin Regeer or Doug Murray. Oh. That's probably where it started. Not, not dog. <laughs> <laughs> There's some nice tape of Paris trying to get down the wall. Okay, on me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, that came from Todd Bertuzzi. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What uh, gets you when uh, the uh, win at all costs, the Corey Perry win at all costs, whether it be, you know, putting the water in the glove? I think you did that once, didn't you? One time. Stole somebody's stick. One time, did that? Yeah, right. Did that One, once? Yeah, another time. And then you, sh- you know, kind of instigating the fans. You do that a lot, never though. Never done that. Never done that. No. What's it like when you play with a guy like that that does those things? <laughs> Get you in trouble. Well, I said I, <laughs> I've been in probably more fights because of him and on the ice than I have myself. But uh, no, I loved it. I thought it was hilarious when he would get going on his his antics and always end up somehow flopping on the goalie by accident and. All the other stuff that you knew was coming as soon as, as, soon as I, <laughs> I could always I tell when the game was at a certain point. I don't, what was like happen, me, so. I don't know. I'm just looking at you to yeah. get here. Yeah. So how do you? Where does that come from, Paris? To be uh, able to, to kind of, I, <laughs> you just just scored a few goals in this league, Frenchie, and uh, <laughs> you know exactly where they all came from. Yep. That's your office. Yeah. Probably 200 of them came from him, but. Uh, the yeah. other, the other two hundred. The other two hundred were, were. I was going to say a lot of assists. Like five, uh, five feet from, were the five feet from a lot the of crease. Assists. Yeah, you, you guys can yeah. help each other a little bit. Yeah. Well, maybe. One of the most entertaining things for me was uh, when the all the boys would drive their cars in, and here you come driving in with Pronger and Robbie <laughs> in your Prius, and then it turned into a hydrogen car. Yeah. You know, with yeah. How did that carpool thing work, <laughs> and what was that carpool like with those? With yeah. you and the two. I don't know. I'm sure Prongs was complaining behind my back about having to ride in that type of car, right? He probably was hitting his head on the top. I probably, don't know how he fit in this yeah, thing. Probably like getting under the massage table. God, just it was so oh, much fun. Cursing me he up. comes cruising in. <laughs> Joey's in here. I, I just I love telling the story because down the ramps, all these really, you know, <laughs> extravagant, elegant cars. Here yeah. comes, here comes Scotty, who's got a Ferrari at yeah, home. Yeah, exactly. Let's be honest. I, I like, you know. You like cars I was a kid too. Guy. I was a kid too. Absolutely. And, yeah. Um, yeah, you know what? I over the years I've kind of acquired a bit of a tree hugger sort of mentality. Yeah, you know, we grew up in a small town out in the wilds of BC. Um, grew up hiking and fishing and getting outside. And the more I traveled, the more I went around, I realized how special a place it was where I where I grew up and the wildlife that that's there and that type of thing. So I've kind of taken a bit of a an interest and in, you know try to sort of promote that and do little things I can to kind of bring awareness to it and hopefully able to for grandkids and future generations to be able to do what I've done, which is go out and go hiking and you're fishing and across the lake, there's a grizzly with two cubs walking along there and you're scared out of your mind and your dad's telling you do this and do that. Like you feel alive. Like it's, 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 uh, I don't know. I, I enjoy it. And they're just really, 
impressive to see that that type of you know nature and wildlife and understand it that way so yeah i in in you know it's one of the interests i have when i'm not yeah. at the rink and it's sort of developed over time and um you know i guess it just comes from a love just from how i grew up and that sort of thing so so i kind of went you know went to the the hybrid went to the prius trying to yeah. you know do my part that way and then uh with honda as a sponsor they they were looking for uh somebody with the team to drive one of their hydrogen uh fuel cell vehicles that they had just released um to a small number of people and Brian Burke wasn't interested, shockingly enough, but, uh, so I was kind of, I wish Berkey, I, I mean, I, cause we would have had a camera when he got out of the car yeah, and yeah. he would have been able to handle it. Yeah, uh, exactly. So that wasn't for him. Uh -uh. Um, and then I was the one that, uh, was, perfect. was kind of excited perfect about fit. it. Yeah. yeah it was, it was kind of neat, you know, to, to do something like that too. So. And this is a light the lamp episode. So of course we have to go into some of my favorite interviews that we've had in light the lamp. So many guests from all around the NHL, a lot of different backgrounds, and a lot of stories have been told on this show. Plus, lots of hockey. We're getting closer to the halfway mark of the season as we head into the new year. And it's been exciting for me to see how much the NHL has evolved over these first couple months, as well as light the lamp in general. So now some of the Ducks players have also been a part of this show making appearances in particular one that stands out in my mind Trevor Zegers at training camp coming in on a mini car that was definitely a highlight for me especially being that was one of the very first days so even though we've had so many amazing guests on it was kind of hard for me to pick some of my favorites but we were able to compile a list you can hear from John Bucigras, Doc Emmerich, Ali Lozoff, Eddie Olchek, Darren Pang, and Jackie Redman in these next clips. You talk about that coverage. Last season, you were on the call for the iconic Trevor Zegras, Sonny Milano, Ali Oop goal in Buffalo. You know, getting to be a part of that in this new era of hockey that we're seeing, what's an iconic moment that you remember from growing up and watching the sport too? Um, you know, probably, you know, certainly Mike Ruzioni when I was 14 years old, scored the uh, game winning goal as the U.S. beat Russia to win Olympic gold. Um, you know, NHL, I grew up, my dad's a Boston guy and I was raised in Pennsylvania and Ohio. So we would listen to games on the radio. I didn't have cable TV till I was about 12, 13. So we listened to games on the radio because we lived near Pittsburgh and he was a big Bruins fan, like I mentioned. And back then they had big, powerful radio stations that would come in clear as a day as far as away from Boston, St. Louis, those big Westinghouse broadcasting stations, WBZ in Boston, KMOX in St. Louis. And you could listen, like I said, crystal clear. So we listened to a lot of games on the radio. That's a great way as a kid to uh, kind of invent the game in your head. You know, you you hear the words described by the announcer. You hear the roar of the crowd. You hear the announcer describe fights and goals and blood. And it's really an interesting, interesting way to to formulate the game in your brain. And to me, it was always a very dark, violent, goth kind of a game that combined like church and with the organ playing and the playing those old big buildings that look like mm -hmm. churches back in the day. Now they look like Walmarts. But <laughs> um, so I thought it was a great, interesting time, the best time to grow up as a hockey fan there. It was so visceral. And so therefore it's just has stuck with me my whole life because it made such an, an impact and imprint in my brain. I downloaded so many of those images and uh, descriptions. And so the game is still lit pretty brightly inside me. And did you have that interest in going into broadcasting then when you were watching as a kid? 
Yeah, it, it, you know, certainly when I was about 12, 13, and we moved from Pennsylvania to Ohio, and so I, you know, kind of lost all my friends and kind of was isolated a lot. So I kind of, as an introvert, kind of dove into myself and, and my house, and I, I started playing with these tape recorders. My parents gave me an old tape recorder, and I would kind of just, you know, just make these sounds and do little, and I love music, so I would you know, turn the sound down on the TV and broadcast games. And because again, those announcers made such an impact on me without thinking about broadcasting, just as a sports fan, they made such an impact. It, it you know, sports was very theatrical to me. It was a huge deal. And then starting watching games on TV, I would notice things. Um, and you know, when they changed the graphics, I would notice it. If they changed the camera angle five feet, I would notice it. You know, looking back as I got older, I realized, well, I, I really had some sort of, you know, I was kind of born to do this and like in the production and, and the bigness of it. And then, and so this creating things, you know, like I said, turn the sound down, broadcast, get another tape recorder for Christmas and then play music in one and be a DJ in the other, and then start kind of making these like sports uh, highly you know, using a call, a home run call from a broadcaster that I would describe it. I'd make these like little season long, you know, vignettes on my tape recorder of the stuff I'd watch NFL films and this week in baseball and, and anything else I'd see on TV, these productions, these studio shows and things. And I just, yeah, I started young and knew what I wanted to do from a very young age. Like I said, pretty much 12, 13. Well, you were, part of a number of amazing moments throughout hockey history calling those games stanley cup finals olympic moments i mean you name it you've called it uh let's talk about some of those moments that stand out to you maybe some of your favorite calls i remember you telling me the story about the penguins winter classic calling Sidney crosby's overtime goal in 2000 or shootout goal in 2008 uh what are some other memories that stand out to you well, I think probably, um, and it's not because of necessarily anything I said, but it was probably what I didn't say. Uh, you know, I have a tremendous grasp of the obvious, and sometimes the obvious is you shouldn't say a thing. Um, the 2010 gold medal game between the U.S. and Canada was a great memory for me in that I got to be there. It was the U.S. and Canada. And it was the day of the gold medal or uh, the day of the gold medal game for men's hockey, but also the day of the closing ceremony. It was a Sunday afternoon and we knew that a lot of TVs would be turned on during the afternoon, perhaps because there is hockey and a lot of people didn't watch hockey except every four years for the Olympics. It was U.S. and Canadian athletes and that sort of fit with all of North America. Uh, it was on before people were gonna watch the closing ceremony from Vancouver, British Columbia. So it wasn't halfway around the world, which also triggered a lot of interest. But for me, it was, I think, the best example of our sport to show people that didn't watch it all the time. And here's why. The game uh, featured uh, um, wonderful goaltending, um, I remember uh, Eddie Olchek was talking about Roberto Luongo, the goaltender for Canada, early, and he sensed that Roberto was shaky in goal. And so he started to say, if I'm at the U.S. bench, I go out there and I shoot on this guy from anywhere <laughs> because he doesn't look secure. Mm -hmm. And at the other end, Ryan Miller, 
seems to be a familiar name in Anaheim, too. <laughs> yep. Ryan Miller was spectacular for the United States. And so we had a game that really exemplified the best of hockey in that it went down to the last minute. Goaltender was pulled for an extra attacker. And the United States tied it up on a very late goal out of a net mouse scramble by Zach Parisi. So now it was going to overtime. So consider the, uh, the whole notion of a lot of TVs on and the ones that weren't turned on for the closing ceremony. There were people that were communicating via cell phones or via conventional phones to other people saying, have you, have you been watching this hockey game? And if the answer was no, they turned it on because it was going to sudden death overtime. There was a full intermission before the overtime. So there was a lot of time for this kind of communication. And um, then uh, Crosby scored in overtime and um, the gold medal was decided uh, wisely. Um, and I learned this from several people that are broadcasters. Once the goal was scored and I said the gold medal to Canada, I said nothing mm -hmm. because we have professionals that operate cameras and our producers in the truck and directors in the truck. And this was their moment to shine, to get the discouragement of the U.S. team, the celebration of the Canadian team, perhaps a few fan reactions in the crowd, and then the handshakes. Nothing needed to be said and anything that was going to be said, I thought would detract from the moment that we were watching. Mm -hmm. And before the medals were handed out, uh, Pierre Maguire was not working for us that day. He was working for Canada, but we had the rights to play some interviews. And we had on Ryan Miller and Sidney Crosby. And both of them spoke so eloquently about the competition, the Olympics, and the playing of the game. And I thought, if we could handpick a game to show people that hadn't seen it much, it was a hard fought game, outcome was in doubt, went to overtime, and we had two of the best spokesmen for the sport to speak about it afterwards. We couldn't do any better than that. Hmm. And from 1980, this was the highest viewed hockey telecast in the United States. Wow. Not a tribute to me. It was a tribute to the athletes and the situation. Now, with your career, you were previously with the Vegas Golden Knights and then found your way to the Anaheim Ducks. How did that happen? How did you come to Anaheim and how much has it meant for you to be a part of the Ducks? You know, I it's it's meant everything to to me and to my family. I don't want to get too emotional. <laughs> I'm going to take a sip of water here, but um, maybe you might not know, but uh, and Mark fans certainly might not be aware, but I was supposed to come and uh, fulfill this role and be with the Ducks in 2014, um, prior okay. to me ever even, prior to the Golden Knights even existing. Uh, and I had an extreme life event happen to our family that year. My mom, very sadly, had a, a massive brain aneurysm that resulted in a stroke. And she, it was, you know, super sudden. She was 56 years old at the time and like super active, you know, beautiful, fun, vibrant woman. And it just really changed our worlds uh, overnight. 
And the Ducks family was incredible to me and supported me that whole, you know, season. They held my position for me and if I was going to be able to come out and and uh, do it. But I, I just at the time made the t- decision to stay home and, and take mm-hmm. care of my mom and, and help her through her rehab as best I could um, and, and help her, you know, in any way I could be there for her. Uh, I just wasn't ready to leave. And so it put everything kind of on the back burner. And for a long time, really, I didn't know whether I would come back at all. I, I, I when I was ready to re-enter the workforce, I wasn't, I still wasn't ready to be far away from her. So I, that's where I told you someone close to me said, Hey, you know, have you ever heard of this, um, a position as director of development with a foundation? And I honestly didn't even know that position existed at the time, Mm but Lo and behold, it was a passion for me. I ended up working for, um, you know, the two different nonprofit organizations and had a great year entering the workforce slowly. And then, of course, when I wanted to be back on TV and I missed hockey, you know, I just missed everything about what I had done previously. Uh, The Golden Knights, um, you know, were were looking for someone and it was just a magical, magical experience for me to be a part of that in their first two seasons. And, you know, full circle, the Ducks were, um, you know, reaching out to me to be able to finally come and do what I was meant to do from the start. And it was just an obvious decision for our family. We couldn't be happier uh, raising our daughter in in Anaheim Hills where we live and having the support of the team and the, the really the family that that is the Ducks and uh and so I'm glad that it all kind of worked out. And my mom actually still, she she's always called it, you know, my second family. And she's just so happy for us to be here with them. And she's met everybody that I work with. And everyone always keeps tabs on her and her journey and how she's doing. So it's been really special for us. Going back to your playing days, you've talked about a lot of the different guys that you've played against or played with. Do you have mm-hmm. any great stories or moments that specifically stand out to you that you <laughs> want to share? <laughs> I'm sure you have a lot. Yeah. Um, okay. I'll, I'll tell you this one. I, I've told this one, and you know, it might be some people that obviously probably don't know my background, but I, so I grew up in Chicago. Uh, all I ever wanted to do was play for the Chicago Blackhawks and, I was lucky enough to play on the 1984 U.S. Olympic hockey team. And uh, right after that, I got drafted uh, in 1984, in the summer of 1984. And the Blackhawks had the sixth overall pick. And they ended up moving up in a draft uh, to number three overall. They made a big trade with the L.A. Kings and ended up moving up. And uh, a guy by the name of Mario Lemieux went number one. Kirk Muller, assistant coach in Calgary right now, and went number two. And when the Blackhawks moved up, they, you know, they uh, drafted me number three overall. And when probably a little bit before the draft, I was having this dream where I would drive to the old building where the Blackhawks used to play. It was called the Chicago Stadium and never make another building like that ever again. Um, but I always had this dream where for my first NHL game, I was running late. Traffic was bad. <laughs> I got to the arena. The security guard wouldn't let me in because he said Eddie Olchek was already here and he made me pull out my driver's license. And then I walk into the building and then security guard grabs me and asks me, hey, where are you going? And, you know, just like one of these Mm -hmm. crazy, you know, and I wake (laughs) up in a panic. Right. So I get drafted by the Blackhawks and then I go to training camp. 
And I've always said this is that uh, the lifeline of a hockey player is the trainer or are the trainers. I should say those guys are and girls are overworked and underpaid. They, if you really want to know what the hell's going on, talk to a trainer and they'll be able to tell you the truth. And, and I've been fortunate enough to have some of the best and longest standing trainers in the national hockey league for, for many, many years. So during training camp of my rookie year, our old medical trainer skipped there. I, I was just talking to him one day. We we're just kind of talking about a little bit of everything. And, and I just, for some reason, I just, you know, I, I wanted to share this dream with him <laughs> and you know, he just kind of looked at me and, you know, I just kind of was real, you know, he's real serious and uh, talking about how, you know, dreams come true. He said, you dreamed about being a Blackhawk, right? And I'm like, yeah, yeah. You know, he, he really kind of brought me in hook, line and sinker, you know? So I told him the story that I just, the dream I was having. So fast forward a couple of weeks in the early October and I was still living at home at the time. I was 18 years old and, and living with my mom and dad and my brothers. And I'm driving down to, you know, I'm not in any hurry. I'm leaving, you know, more than enough time. And this dream kind of came to me, like just thinking about it in, during the day. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden I get into the old Chicago Stadium parking lot. And as I pull in the, you know, the, the parking attendant who I'd seen before, he stops my car and he asked me to roll down the window. And I, you know, I think I said, Hey, Frankie. And he goes, uh, can I help you? And I go, um, um, I'm Eddie Olchek. <laughs> and he goes, well, no, he's already here. And I went, Oh my gosh. I said, I'm living this dream. I said, I can't <laughs> believe I dreamed this, you know? And I'm, and I'm just like, what the hell is going on? He goes, no, no, let me see your ID. I pull out my ID and I'm like, I can't believe this. I said, you know, I, I'm going to score a goal because I always dreamed about scoring a goal in my first game of my career, you know, against the Detroit Red Wings when we happened to play them that night. So, you know, he finally goes, all right, go ahead. You know, so I go in, I leave my car, I walk in the door and all of a sudden the security guy, uh, his nickname was Spider. He grabs me, he goes, hey, where are you going? I go, oh my gosh. Like, I'm like, now I'm, now I'm frazzled. Like, I am like, hey, where are you going? I go, um, I'm Eddie Olchek. I'm playing in the game that he goes, no, he's already here. And I'm like, no, no, really? I said, I'm not. not." (laughs) So then he kind of walks away, goes over to the phone that was there and he kind of just picks it up. He goes, all right, go ahead. And and I went walking away and I, and I swear, Alexis, I was shaking my head. Like, I'm like, I can't believe this. I, I dread this. Like I, (laughs) right. So I go downstairs, I walk down the stairs, I walk by the training room. And I just, and, 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 and I, as I walked by the training room, there's a big window and the door was open and Skip was standing there and Skip was probably, you wouldn't mind if I said this, Skip was probably six foot tall and probably four feet wide, if you know what I mean. <laughs> and, and, and Skippy, and I look at Skip, I go, Hey, Skippy he goes, Hey kid, do you have any problem getting in the building tonight? <laughs> and and I went, oh my gosh! I said maybe that's why I love the trainers so much, maybe because I trust them so much. But uh, so I and I did. I scored a goal in my very first game against the Detroit Red Wings, which I know made uh, myself and Blackhawk fans really happy because of the the great relationship that the Hawks and Red Wings fans have. So. Uh, that was one night, uh, Alexis, <laughs> that uh, that I certainly will will never forget. But had a little uh, primary assist there from our uh, from a med- medical <laughs> trainer skip there. Now, right before this, you told me a really cool story about Tamo Solani. Mm-hmm. I want you to tell our listeners that exact story again. <laughs> well, and we were and we were talking about Mark Andre Fleury being one of my favorites uh, for forever. 
but I was doing the Olympics in 1998 for CBS, and I was outside the 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 bus area where the players, not like here where you could just walk around, they had to get on their bus, they had to go to their hotel or their, wherever they were at the village. And so I was I was talking to Timo, and the bus was waiting for for Timo on the Team Finland bus. And so he said, hey, hold on a second here. This young man's been kind of calling for me. So he walked about 20 yards over to an area that was kind of barricaded off because no one could get near the buses. And But there's Timo Solani making sure he went over to this one young man. He was a Japanese hockey fan like you read about. I mean, he had books and cards and whatever. And I don't recall his name, but I recall this moment like it was yesterday. Timo gave him his cell phone number, said, I got to go back with Team Finland. I'll call you later and we'll go for lunch. And he did that. He never met this kid before. This kid ends up being the leader or the president of the Timo Solani fan club. <laughs> and it just so happens that one time I'm actually here in Anaheim and Timo said to me, he goes, you remember, uh, and I, again, I can't remember his name, but I, I go, yeah, the, the young man from uh, from the Olympics. He goes, yeah, he's, he's coming here and, and he's going to stay. I think he said a week. And, and if I'm wrong, it's probably not far off. <laughs> He says, uh, and I said, where's he staying? He goes, well, my house, of course. He's staying at my house. <laughs> and, and and this, you know, this young man started the Timo Solani fan club. And and I, I just, I, I went to the nearest store, and I think Nike was running the whole Olympics at that time. And I went there. I bought a Solani number eight Finnish sweater. And I'm sure it was eight. I don't think it was 13 at the time. I think it was eight. I had him sign it to my son, Tyler. And I gave it to my son. And I said, Ty, this is your favorite hockey player starting today. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure he was the favorite for many people too. Oh my goodness! <laughs> you know the nice thing about Timo and Mark Andre Fleury is good examples is it's not phony niceness. Mm -hmm. It's not phony friendship. It's it's genuine. It's what the person is, and that's what I love about this game. We all you don't have to hide in a shell and hide behind your uniform or hide behind a bus or hide behind a hotel. Get, get on out there. You mm -hmm. know there's so much more to the game, and you can be so influential. And and clearly those two are two of the best. From the Cup final last year, maybe covering the playoffs or anything. Oh, I like have that. I have a good story um, from the Cup final last year. Um, I obviously the Colorado Avalanche and their journey to the Cup, and uh, you know you forget this is going to sound so strange, but you forget when you do a show every day that like it goes out to real people and they watch it. <laughs> like, to yes. me, it's like I'm just like, I get doing that. my job, and then once in a while I'll I'll see it on you know at a bar or someone will bring up the show to me, and I'm like, oh yeah. That's right. Like people watch that. <laughs> That's weird. And so during the cup final, um, after the Avs have had won, Kale McCarr's dad um, came up to me and was like, hey, I just wanted to introduce myself. I'm Kale McCarr's dad. And I just want to say thank you for all of the coverage this year. You you and EJ have been so kind to my son and you guys talk about him all oh. the time. And I'm like, yeah, your son's Kale McCarr. Everyone, <laughs> everyone is talking about your son. And so it was kind of this interesting moment where it was like, oh, yeah, like, I guess like some of these guys' families tune into <laughs> NHL Network to see what we're saying about their kids. And so um, that was kind of a surreal moment for me as well. And, you know, I just happened to be um, hanging out with the guys from Missing Curfew um, a few days before they won the cup. Um, Shane O'Brien and Scotty Upshaw, and we ended up at a pool hall with Kale McCarr's brother and <laughs> playing pool and doing that sort of thing. So it's little things like that where you kind of um, you're like, man, like what I'm doing is so cool right now. And, mm -hmm. and you learn things about the players in the league or the teams just from a lot of those different interactions that you have that are so 
you know, unexpected. Mm-hmm. Like I did not expect to be playing pool with Kale McCarr's brother <laughs> randomly um, with the missing curfew guys. And then, you know, four days later, I'm chatting with Kale McCarr's dad and he's thanking me. I'm like, are you what? Like, you should not be thanking me for how I covered your son. He's literally like a generational talent. Mm-hmm. But all right, cool. <laughs> so he comes from a clearly comes from a very, very down to earth home. Up next, a show that has recently gotten off the ground, the Players' Lounge, when our Anaheim Ducks players will come off the ice and back here into the Korea studio to talk everything besides hockey. Max Jones, Troy Terry, and Kevin Shattenkirk sat down with Kent French for episode number one. This was a really fun one, and it gives you guys the opportunity to learn more about these guys off the ice and from what you see. I've always been a huge fan of the concept of this show because we don't get to learn about hockey players all that often, especially from the fan side of it. You only get to see what you see on social media, really. And this was a great opportunity to give the guys the spotlight, to have fun, relax, and talk everything that isn't hockey and show their personality off the ice. This is just one of my favorite shows on Duckstream. So in this clip of the Players' Lounge, the guys share some stories of their experiences with roommates, something that is very relatable to a lot of people, including when Troy and Max were roommates themselves. Hear it in this next segment. That's good times. Hey, how was was Troy as a roommate? Awesome. I miss having a roommate. I do. I honestly was saying this the other day. I would like to have a roommate again. <laughs> well, but. we had, I had, I, I, I don't actually have this issue as much anymore, anymore but I used and to just put stuff everything on your bed. bed. Yeah. yeah, I know. <laughs> Every single time we went to a hotel, we'd like get in and I'd like put my bags or whatever and unload stuff kind of like, not really crazy, but they would just, my bed would be clear. He would throw everything on his bed and then leave it. Like we'd, like I'd be in bed and he would be under his covers and he would have his backpack and his like oh my God. luggage. And like clothes would be out. I used to just sleep in it. Like, like there'd be stuff all over the bed. It came to the point where I just started making a joke. I'd take like the office chair and just put it on his bed. Yeah, there was like a few times I came in and he had put every object in the room on my bed. Like, and he, he just crawled into bed underneath <laughs> it. It was. I think I, I might have a photo of it somewhere. <laughs> how did you? How did you guys decide who got what bed? Like off the jump, you were always the window. I, think I was. Like I the was far. the far bed. Yeah. I never. I don't think we ever really. It's an alpha move. I, is it? Yeah. Is it? Nice, Bro, I feel like that's a nice that's a nice bed. It's a longer walk like, to the bathroom though. I feel like the yeah, alpha is usually you get closer to the what air. If someone, it's a little cooler over there. Well, what if someone this is what Danny says to me because I, have to, I have to sleep be on closer the, to the door towards the door that if someone breaks in, I was the alpha get, in get our to, room get to that I was first. closer to the door. I hate to say it, but you're going down first if someone because <laughs> you're asleep. They attack you first. Then he hears that. He wakes up. Yeah, at least I get a fighting chance. Uh, I am a heavy sleeper, too. <laughs> oh. oh, countless amount of times Troy fell asleep with, like, his phone in his hand or, like, the TV. Just He loves the TV on when he would go to bed. But, like, lights on, everything on, stuff on his bed. He'd just be – I'd be talking, and i look over, and he's just out cold all the time. It's your soothing voice that we just put him to sleep. <laughs> yeah, thank yeah. you. Thank you for that. <laughs> Shad, you remember uh, a good roomie, bad roomie, coming coming up? Yeah, I my best roomie was uh, Chris Stewart, okay, former yeah. duck, yeah, um, one of my best buddies. We had a great, just a great relationship, a great time. I was in charge of a lot in the room. Like for someone who was only a year older than me, um, he wore the pants in the relationship. I'd say, <laughs> um, but 
you know, he also took care of a lot of room service charges for me, which was oh, nice. Okay. You know, he, he tended to, uh, you know, make sure that was covered as long as he was awake and, you know, on the bus on time. Uh, I had this one roommate, David Kochi, who's a former fighter yeah. um, for the Avalanche and a few other teams. And he was, uh, I give him credit, like he was a pro's pro. He did everything by the book, barely drank, you know, ate like salmon and vegetables and steak. Like that was it. So I remember my first road trip. I get in the room with him and it's like 845 and he takes the controller right off the nightstand, turns off the TV, turns all the lights off and just looks at me. He's like, it's bedtime. <laughs> and I'm like laying there in my full like like jeans still like just got back from dinner. I'm laying in bed. I'm like, all right, I guess I'm going to bed at <laughs> nine o'clock. Like, was he was he how old was he? Older? He was older. He was like. So did you used to have roommates? We used to have. So it used to be the rule was you didn't get a, your own room until 600 games. For real, which is a long time. Wow, that's a lot. Um, of games. So everyone, everyone had had room had roommates, which was awesome. Like I, like you said, I loved having a roommate. But yeah, that one circumstance could. Yeah, you got like thirty five year old guys with roommates. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We well, didn't have a phone. Like we didn't have phones back then, right? Come on, <laughs> give me a break. Yeah, the, I mean, not the, the flip phones. You the, the flip phones. The Motorola <laughs> Razor. The ones like the bag. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just. I don't know. No, so then it, that became, uh, you know, turned into me just going to one of the old, the younger guys' rooms until like 11 o'clock. We'd always order dessert and a movie, and I'd come back in, tiptoe in at 11 o'clock at night. But uh, then I remember one night, the night I got traded from Colorado to St. Louis, our GM called the room at like midnight, and we were asleep. And Kochi got pissed off because he picked up the phone, and our GM asked for me, and he thought like it was one of my buddies calling and he was like, the phone, it's for you. I was like, who the hell is calling at this time? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> On the room phone? Like, who the hell calls on the room phone? <laughs> so I pick it up, and it was, it was GM Greg Sherman. He was like, hey, I need you to come down to my room. Coach, he's still yelling at me. I'm like, will you stop? I think I'm getting traded right now. Like, give me a break. <laughs> so I wound up going down. I only had my suit, so I put my suit on and went down, got traded. And I think I had, like, three hours to pack and get on the car and go to St. Louis, play the next night. Jesus. Wow! Yeah, the I trade mean, happened at midnight, huh? Yeah, they couldn't. They couldn't wait. Was it de- was it deadline? <laughs> <laughs> was it de- a trade deadline? Is it the- uh, it was it was close to it, but it yeah, wasn't that. It wasn't. That yeah, night. it wasn't like a pressing matter. But yeah, uh, yeah, it was a. That was that kind of out of nowhere? Did you kind of know that? It- uh yeah. I mean, I was pretty, you know, stunned by it, but I was kind of a throw-in. So it was Chris Stewart and I got traded oh, for uh, Eric Johnson and Jamie Clement. Yeah. Right. Oh, I, I was a diehard Avalanche fan at yeah. the time. So was I. Yeah. Just, Number eight for the Avs. Oh, I know. I remember. The last great eight to where, you know. I was watching you growing up. <laughs> Other than Shandy. I was watching the old Shattenkirk. <laughs> Behind the Bench is a show highlighting the coaching staff. And in this show clip, I had the chance to sit down with head coach Dallas Akins. This was early in the season. And his story really stuck with me. I didn't know much about Dallas when I got here from the personal side. And I felt like he opened up so much. And I know that for a lot of people, this episode stood out to them because they got to see more behind the bench per se. So Dallas details the story of his upbringing, going from sunny Florida to the cold Canada. And when he started playing hockey, hear from Dallas now in this next clip. Well, you talked about 
that past in your life. And I, I want to get into that a little bit, talking about your childhood and how you got into hockey a little bit. But give me a look into, and anyone that's listening, into what that looked like for you guys. Well, I, I think if uh, I, I ran into anybody on the street, what they're going to hear is a Canadian accent and they're just <laughs> going to think, Hey, this guy grew up in Canada and he played hockey and, uh, he, uh, ended up coaching and that's kind of it. And it's, it's far different. I, I was actually born in a very rural part of a very rural town, uh, um, called Dade city, Florida. It's, uh, probably an hour or so outside of Tampa. Okay. Uh, uh, when I say rural, I mean rural. I mean dirt road, probably three quarters of a mile long. It dead ended at the the one end. We lived in a trailer, uh, my mother and I, that uh, backed up to a swampy area. I spent most of my days um, trying to stay away, away from water moccasins, which are just yeah nasty Can't snakes. Imagine. I just still talking about them right now give me uh, <laughs> goosebumps on my arms my grandparents lived in a little shack uh next to the trailer and my great-grandmother who i thought lived in a little shack too until i visited it um probably a dozen years ago or so it, it, it looked more like a shed <laughs> <laughs> um but so like that was kind of our our, our life and my original last name is not Eakins. Uh, I never knew my birth father, um, but I was born Yoder, Y-O-D-E-R. Um, uh, my mom ended up starting to date a, a Canadian who was living in Dade City, Florida. Uh, he was in the trucking business. That had to be very random. I feel like all the way down in Florida to oh, like, move from Canada. Yeah, yeah. it's crazy that, yeah. that he was living there. Um, so they started dating, they ended up getting married. Um, and then my, my, my father decided, my mother obviously decided that, uh, we were going to make the big move to, um, just outside where he was from. He was from Lindsay, Ontario in Canada. Uh, the next kind of biggest city next to that is Peterborough, Ontario. Uh, and we moved there just kind of just before I was turning eight years old and, so that's when I showed up there, I had a Southern accent <laughs> and, uh, now I have a Canadian one and, and that's where I started the whole hockey process. Uh, mm -hmm. I was late to the party, uh, at just turning eight, um, on the hockey front of it. Like mm -hmm. I, I started playing road hockey just to make a friend. I had to push the chair around in the backyard and get, uh, laughed at and, and, uh, <laughs> made fun of by the kids over, over the fence. Cause they thought it was pretty funny that an eight year old couldn't skate. A kid from Florida though, going to Canada. I mean, I have a hard time believing that they would expect, you know, you to be able to play hockey coming from Florida to go to Canada. Yeah. Kids don't care much. About That's that, true. That's think. true. <laughs> so, but it's, so yeah, it's been an, uh, an interesting go from extremely, rural, extremely poor, uh, and just outside basically, Hey, no shirt, shorts, no shoes, doing whatever, whatever I wanted, basically up and down that dirt road to moving to Canada, becoming a, uh, a rink rat, uh, just absolutely loving hockey and, uh, you know, d experiencing a, a totally different life. And it's one of the things I really believe in life like 
you know, you, you, you get into adversity or you're thinking about how your life is. And even though I was just a kid then, I wasn't thinking about how my life was. I mm-hmm. was just being a kid. But looking back, you know, there was a lot of adversity going on there. But for my mother, it was just her and I for mm-hmm. quite a long time. Um, and, and then meeting somebody from another country and then making the move, there was a whole bunch of uh, adversity going on. And, but I'm a, I'm a big believer that, you know, life isn't happening to you. Uh, it's happening for you. Uh, the to you is it's just kind of setting you up for something better, uh, down the road. And it's important to go through the adversity and, um, learn from it, uh, maybe callous your brain a little bit and, uh, get ready for what that bigger plan is. Another show you can hear on Duckstream, The Beaker, originally named The Beak, but general manager Pat Verbeek wanted it to be named The Beaker. So what he asks for, he shall receive. Now, Pat is in his first full season with the Anaheim Ducks, and it's been important for us to have this show so that he can be transparent with you guys. This show gives the opportunity to learn a little bit more on what's going on behind the scenes. Now in the clip that we chose for this section, Pat talks about how he got his nickname as the little ball of hate when he was a hockey player, and then also working in Tampa and Detroit, and the philosophy that he has on the management side of the game, having seen different ownerships. You can hear more from Pat right now. During your playing days, you also got the nickname Little Ball of Hate. I want to know where that started. That started uh, in New York uh, with Glenn Healy. Um, It really became, I was kind of a grumpy guy on the ice. And and Ray Ferraro, he was known as um, the Big Ball of Hate because he was grumpy off the ice and I was grumpy on on the (laughs) ice. So I became Little Ball of Hate and he was Big Ball of Hate, um, you know, on the ice or off the ice. So it kind of stuck uh, when I went to Dallas. It really stuck. But guys called me that there in New York, but it, it really stuck when I went to Dallas. Certainly a lot of penalty minutes during your career as well. So is that that correlates there? <laughs> well, I would say so. Yeah, I mean, that was kind of it didn't take I had a quick temper. It didn't take a lot for me to get mad, um, which was kind of nice. Like there was days like, you know, you never felt good and it I could suddenly get the adrenaline going the way, you know, what needed to be, you know, done on the ice in order to get playing better, you know? So there's some days I just, <laughs> your body doesn't feel good. And so I was glad that I can summon, you know, you know, some anger to play. And if you see Ray Ferraro now, do you still, do you call him that? No, no, I <laughs> do not. I, I actually call him Pee Wee. Oh, yeah. Where did that come from? From Hartford. He was just, just a little guy. We just call him Pee Wee. <laughs> Well, now that you've moved into the business side of hockey, I mean, you've spent some time in Tampa. You were a part of building the team down there. You were in Detroit as well. Can you talk about the couple things that you lead with into an organization, whether it's the work ethic, the leadership, all of those things are, are important to you? Well, I think uh, where it's really important, it really starts at the top. So I, you know, that the thing, you know, with both organizations that I, you know, that I left, um, you know, I think ownership is, is key to any successful, uh, hockey team. And I think, um, Jeff Finnick was a great owner, awesome owner, awesome to work for. And the same with Chris Illich in, in Detroit. So, 
both those owners let uh, you know hockey ops and their management team you know allowed them to do their job. Um, they just let them do their job, you know. Mm-hmm. So whatever they thought, you know, was you know was always discussed with the ownership and stuff like that. But they let them do their jobs, and in, in the sense that um, they they weren't overbearing. They were just you know it was a, it was a, like a, a really good partnership um, with the general manager Steve Eisenman with ownership. So um, and I think that's uh, a key thing. And then um with players uh you know the philosophy is you know I try not to bring players into the NHL before their time um you know I'm, we're, we have a similar situation with um you know Zegris is a young player Drysdale's you know those guys are now starting to take you know steps that uh you know the organization needs now Mason McTavish um you know he's he's going to be on the team this year so expectations for him aren't um um you know, high, you know, I, I want, I don't want to put any expectations on him. I want him to really learn the league, learn, um, you know, the, you know, to have to, you know, it's, it's going to be hard, you know, in certain circumstances to, uh, play against best players in the world. So there's going to be a learning curve there for him. So, you know, and I think there's nothing for him left to prove in junior. He's po- he's won possibly everything he can possibly win. Um, and so I think he's ready for the next step. Now, is it, you know, is it is it a big step? Yeah, it could be a mm-hmm. big step. But I think he's capable. I know he's got the work ethic. He's got the commitment, and I think he's willing to put in the time, not only on the ice but off the ice, um, in the video room. So I, I think uh, he, I think he's ready for it. Now, in the final clip that I'd like to include here on Light the Lamp from a show on Duckstream, leading the flock. Leading the flock is all about the partners of the Anaheim Ducks. And those who have ties with the organization and doing things around Orange County and with the team. Ethan Baraldi and Luke Gain were a part of the first episode of this show, talking through life as the 21st duck. And Luke gave Ethan advice on what to expect on the upcoming year. It was a really heartfelt episode. I certainly enjoyed it. Make sure you go back and listen to it. But for the clip that we chose for this one, the Anaheim Ducks have pretty amazing owners and Henry and Susan Samueli who constantly give back to the community. Susan Samueli sat down in the studio with Kent French and shared details of why it's important for them to give back. It's not too often you get to hear from a team's owners on a team platform, but we were so lucky to have Susan join us here on Duckstream. So philanthropy has always been part of our lives. And when we realized we had lots of money to give away, we just said, where to first and how much? I mean, it just was something we, we never questioned it. We never thought that much about it, but we knew that was what we were going to do. Was there something, was there a cause though, once you were able to to have the means to give back, was there a cause that's, you know, kind of called out to you? Well, yes, there were lots of causes. For Henry, School of Engineering at UCLA was huge because he wouldn't be who he is without UCLA and the School of Engineering. So that was his first uh, thought was, of course, I'm going to give money there. For me, it was our synagogue. Um, Our synagogue needed a new home. It was in temporary buildings, and I knew that we were going to start giving back to our synagogue. 
So for me, that was it. And then the phone calls started coming oh, in. Oh, yeah. Oh, I bet they did. Yeah. Yeah. So when, when you and Henry first met, did you guys realize that you had, amongst many other things, you had this sense of philanthropy in common? Probably not. We never <laughs> even talked about it. <laughs> well, then how did this come about then? Like, what did you... <laughs> Well, it wasn't until that money kind of settled in our <laughs> lap. <laughs> and that's when we sure. knew. I mean, we just knew. We just looked at each other and said, well, let's start giving money away. Yeah. And well, and, and when you, again, before, even before Henry, where did, what, uh, I guess, what, what was the feeling that you got in, in the gratification that you got to give back? And, and was it the gratification of giving or what you saw when the other folks and the other organizations got something in return. I think when I was younger and working, it was kind of the United Way thing. You know, at that time, we would give a little bit of money each month out of our paycheck to different charities. I think in the beginning, it was United Way, probably. And it was just knowing that even though I was giving small amounts at that time, it was going to good things. I mean, I grew up in a house where my mother was volunteering at the free clinic. Or, wow. yeah. or my, my dad was the one in the neighborhood in the neighborhood that everyone asked if they needed anything, they would come to him. So I think, and also um, growing up Jewish, we were always buying trees in Israel. It was a, yeah. you go to Israel, everybody's got their tree name on their tree. <laughs> it's like trees everywhere. But I, from the beginning, we were we were putting money in a little box to buy trees in Israel. I mean, we awesome. always knew that we were giving back. How did Orangewood come about? Um, that was. Uh, a friend of mine took me on a tour of Orangewood, and the minute I saw the babies, at this time it was it was the emergency shelter that I went okay. to, and when I was holding the babies, I was like lost, Done. Yeah. knowing that these were foster babies. And so, that just stemmed from there, and you yeah. met people, and you continued to give, and then the Anaheim Ducks, obviously, once you became the owners, then that became... A great avenue, right? I mean, yes, it was a nat it was natural, but it but it changed. I mean, in the beginning, the Anaheim Ducks were giving to things like I believe it was cerebral palsy was one of the big things they were giving to, and we realized it's a great organization. And we need to do that, but why not give to rinks programs? Why not help kids in the neighborhood play hockey? So then we realized we needed to shift what the Anaheim Ducks was doing. We have a number of other shows that I unfortunately haven't been able to include in this Light the Lamp episode, but I want to make sure to name them so you can still go and check them out if you haven't already. Starting with Gulls Report, where you can hear from the voice of the San Diego Gulls, Andy Zilch, the American Hockey League affiliate to the Anaheim Ducks. We've also had Chase DeLeo as a part of Gulls Report. This is a weekly show catching up on everything Gulls hockey and giving a little more background into what the organization is doing down in San Diego. Ducks Unfiltered is another show you can hear on DuckStream. It showcases public figures that have ties to Orange County. Ducks Rewind is a show that you can listen to in just 10 minutes or less. Those recaps include all of the biggest moments from the game, as well as goal calls and sounds from the post game. You can hear from players and head coach Dallas Akins. And lastly, you can catch the pre and post game shows. Those are on demand where you can listen to Steve Carroll, Danwood and Josh Brewster. Now, this is just the beginning for DuckStream. The new year is going to bring so many more opportunities for content, and I could not be more excited for that once again. 
So I want to thank you guys. Thank you for listening. Thank you for consuming all of this content and make sure you follow us on Twitter. If you have not already at Duckstream. we are so grateful here at the ducks to have some of the best fans in the NHL. And I feel very lucky to be a part of the ducks family. As always, thank you for listening to Light the Lamp. I am Alexis Downey. Make sure you come back again after the new year for more hockey talk here on Duckstream. This is an Anaheim Ducks original production on Duckstream.